standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 191 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and yesterday I learned there's a fish called the Sarcastic Fringehead which looks like a goblin from Labyrinth and now I'm concerned that David Attenborough has just been taking the piss. Sarcastic Fringehead. Does it have a fringe? Kinda. That sounds like every sixth former that I went to school with. <laughs> Sarcastic Fringehead. It's very 90s isn't yeah. it? <laughs> Uh, Does it roll its eyes? Furious eye rolling. It's very territorial. It's a weird looking little mm. shit. Is it one of the ones that live really deep? Because the, the, the deeper they get, the weirder those things That is look. true. Then they become like alien monsters from your worst nightmares. But no, fairly yeah. high up in the, in the seas. Ooh. I don't like it. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and let me be the first person to wish you a happy furball season. That is early. That's starting early. Well... Both of them this morning in my house. And then, after I'd cleaned up the second bar, I turned around to see Joan licking Peggy's head. <laughs> I was like, are you enjoying this? Do you want to do it again? She's she's clearly a collector. Yeah. Well, Mumpty had a little... F- I didn't realise it was a season, because it's been a long time since I've lived with a cat, but Mumpty had a little... <laughs> cough the other day that's generally indicative of... Yeah, the old man about to mm. about to buy Lambert and Butler cough. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not strictly a season, but their fur does come out Molting. at this time of year. Mm. So makes sense. Makes yeah. sense that there would be a furball season. There is a fur loss or fur shedding season. Mm. So the two must go hand in hand. Poor and poor. <laughs> I'm Jen Offord, and last week I think I think my hairdresser delivered. Quite an epic burn. Did she call you a sarcastic fringe head? <laughs> Basically, we're having a conversation about what my natural hair colour is, because who knows? And they said that it was blonde, not brown. I said, it is sort of rubbish blonde, though, isn't it? And they said, <laughs> yeah, and with the glasses as well. And I was a bit like, all right. Ooh. What? What does that mean? Hey? I don't think it means anything good, is what I think it means. You're not going back, right? <laughs> did they then make you look like Anthea Turner to add insult to injury? No, they didn't, actually. In fairness to them, they did not. They they didn't make me look like Anthea Turner, and that is... It's been a long time since that happened, so... <laughs> Last time I got my hair cut, it was, like, by a Frenchman in Dalston with a fucking neckerchief, Right. And he made me look like Anthea Turner. I was like, if you think that I want to look like Anthea Turner, like, I'm fucked, basically. <laughs> it kind of sounds like problem. he made you look like Anthea Turner, then offered to draw you a caricature where he was dressed on the pier. Mm. I nearly cried. Later on, journalist, broadcaster and dating expert Nikki Hodgson talks me through the key things to keep you sane in the shark and indeed chump-infested waters that is modern dating. I say modern dating, it's the same as it ever was, as Nikki's book, The Curious History of Dating, attests. It's 80 years this week since the US signed what became known as the Japanese Internment Bill. So I'm talking to author Andrea Warren about her latest history book for kids, Enemy Child. In Jenny Off the Blocks, we look back at a record-breaking year in women's sport and some new research by the Women's Sport Trust. And in Rated or Dated, we ask, what's wrong with Ferris? And I don't mean that in a health way, as we watch Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Sweet fancy Christ. <laughs> but first, it's good night to one dick, but the sun's shining on another. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush! 
Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, highlighting the last week of political hot potatoes with the understated finesse of Liz Truss's headwear. I do hope moving forward as she travels from country to country, she does have a hat wardrobe. <laughs> like, do you remember the thing, Rent-A-Ghost, is that what it's called, with Audrey from Coronation Street and she was like the Swedish, possibly Dutch, don't know, but she was like a milkmaid yes. or something and that's what I want to see her rocking in parts of Northern Europe. Absolutely. I was hoping more like Wurzel Gummidge, where she just removes an entire head, <laughs> puts a new head on. She is as terrifying, so you know. I'd also like to apologise for how I said welcome to the Bush Telegraph, which did have shades of pork markets about <laughs> it, so uh, sorry for that, guys. Oh, I can't wait for the hat for China. And so it's <laughs> goodbye and good riddance to Metropolitan Police Commissioner Dame Cressida Dick, who last week said she had been left with no choice but to step down after London Mayor Sadiq Khan made it clear to her he had no confidence in her leadership. The announcement, rather hilariously, came just hours after Dick told BBC London she had absolutely no intention of quitting. Awkward. Now, if good riddance seems a tad harsh, I am happy to remind you that she oversaw a rank culture of misogyny, racism and homophobia and weathered numerous shitstorms that should have sunk her. To be honest, her handling of the operation that led to the fatal shooting of Jean-Charles de Menezes by officers who mistook him for a suicide bomber before she became commissioner should probably have meant she never held a position in the first place. But for the last five years, she has, meaning she oversaw, and this is by no means a comprehensive list, the rape, abduction and murder of Sarah Everard by a serving Met police officer, but, you know, to quote Dick, he was one of the occasional buddens. A ridiculously heavy-handed approach by police officers at a vigil for Sarah Everard. Accusations of racism from the mother of Nicole Smallman and Bieber Henry, who were murdered in a park in Wembley. Mina Smallman believes police treated the disappearance and death of her daughter less urgently than if they had been white. I'm not even going to go into the fact that two officers took horrific photos. Mm. The delay to the publication of Sue Gray's full report into lockdown parties at Downing Street, which the SNP and Lib Dems have described as a stitch-up between the Met and Number 10. Obviously, the Met's investigation is ongoing. And look, you know, the Met is massive. It's got 45,000 officers and staff, which makes it hugely challenging to monitor behaviour. And that isn't going to magically disappear for Dick's successor. But Dick's biggest failing, and why I genuinely do think it's good she's gone, has been her inability to read the fucking room. Mm. And by room, I mean public mood. She has consistently failed to show any sort of understanding in how and why trust in the force has deteriorated, when I'm sure she could have waved any number of buses down and had people spell it out for her. <laughs> Whoever follows, and that person will be appointed by the Queen on the advice of the Home Secretary, so that's going to be fun, has really got their work cut out. Yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? Because you sort of feel like you would have liked a woman to have presided over a culture that was more, you know, better for women. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't seem to have happened, unfortunately. It's the police, isn't it? There's a reason mm. the police have to look after their own. You know, it's, it's a very dangerous profession. I wouldn't want to be a copper. People don't like you and you put yourself out there every single day. Whatever you think of the police, they're undoubtedly good coppers trying to make the UK a better place, trying to make London a better place in the Mets case. Yeah, for sure. But it does mean that they band together and that's what she did. So to them, I think a lot of the police officers who serve under her really, really fucking respect her. But for the public, her belligerence, her not showing mm. any understanding of how we feel, and like you say, particularly feels like a slap in the face for women, 
is why she she has to go. Embarrassing, desperate and Kipper-like. <laughs> and that's just his general aesthetic. <laughs> that's right, Mick. Jacob Rees-Mogg has been doing the rounds again. Hooray! <laughs> yeah. Fresh from spreading misinformation about the morning after pill two weeks ago, Rees-Mogg has been given a new made-up job well suited to that particular skill set as Minister for Brexit Opportunities. Hang on, that means that he is Minister for BO and fittingly he sticks. <laughs> <laughs> Hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Approaching this position with gusto, the man of the people and personified Dickensian trope <laughs> took to the only place anyone sensible would go for reasoned feedback and asked readers of the Sun of to get in touch and let him know what pieces of, and I quote, petty EU regulation should be abolished. Bring back bendy bananas! Were they too bendy? Were they not bendy enough? I do get ever so confused, but I think most Tories do, to be fair. I want a circle, a circle of banana. Citing Boris Johnson's 2020 assertion that we have taken back control of our laws and our destiny, sure. he added, yep, that the opportunities in front of us are immense. I presume he's not had to sit at home waiting for a parcel to be delivered recently, or indeed, given that this is a man with six children who boasts never to have changed a nappy, taken himself down to Sano's to do the weekly shop. Now, I don't want to do this to you, Mickey, but I am just going to ask you to just let that sit with you. This is a man who has six children. He's had sex at least six times. Uh, it's going to be really hard for me to not vomit for the rest of the Bush Telegraph. I thought it earlier today and I need you to feel the same horror that do I do. Do you know what the horror is, Jen? Because he looks like a Victorian ghost that has seen a ghost and <laughs> he has the same sorts of sensibilities. I imagine that all six times he's had intercourse, it's been <gasps> through a hole in the sheet. I would absolutely agree with you. Yeah, it's, yeah. Anyway, back to Sano's, <laughs> I can tell you. <laughs> If you are looking for anything as exotic as, uh, I don't know, a pink grapefruit or some Sano's own brand Emmental, you might have found your opportunities rather less abundant in recent years. That's just anecdotal, just based on my own experience. Get me pink grapefruit <laughs> and Sano's own brand Emmental, middle-class liberal elite. Fancy bastard. Still, I don't own any shares in, for example, an $8 billion investment fund specialising in emerging markets across several continents. Jacob Rees-Mogg, the new Minister for Brexit Opportunities, he does. Imagine, Jen, if you did own shares in an $8 million investment fund specialising in emerging markets across several continents and still chose to do our podcast. That would be really lovely. <laughs> I'd like to think that I would. Writing in The Sun, Rees Mogg said, Before Brexit, many of my constituents would write to me to complain about regulations that burdened them daily. From farmers to electricians, on so many issues, I had to tell them that even as an MP, I could not help to solve their problems, as these rules were set by the EU, not the British Parliament. Thanks to Brexit, all that has changed. He's such a man of the people. He's even got the same investment... Anyway, yeah, we yeah, won't. Yeah. Mm. Much like his Prime Minister, fundamentally misunderstanding the workings of a democracy, and I'll spell it for you if you'd like, Jacob, he added that now in this brave new world, sun readers can hold their MPs accountable as the buck truly stops with them. Hang on. Does it stop with MPs because of the sun readers, or does it stop with sun readers <laughs> because 
if you're alarmed at the prospect of the latter, it's no more or less than the public has been asked to shoulder responsibility for over the last 18 months or so of COVID pandemic. And the Sun's editors and owners already play a fairly fundamental role in setting our political agenda. So Yeah, I mean, it's like it's 50-50, isn't it? Do you want it to stop with the MPs or do you want it to stop with the Sun readers? Do you want this shit or do you want this shit with a cherry made of shit on top? I don't know. I'm spoiled for choice. Yeah, I do really think it's time for my benign dictatorship, to be honest. (laughs) We're not going to go into why you can't have a benign dictatorship again, (laughs) It's got to be more benign than this, hasn't it? Hasn't it? Okay. I'll consider my third option and get back to you. Is that all right? (laughs) Okay. In the meantime, while you do that, would you like some good news? I bloody would, yeah. Okay. Listeners will have heard you, Michaela Noonan, talking a couple of weeks ago about food writer, anti-poverty campaigner and friend of the podcast, Jack Monroe, and her work on what she's called her Vimes Boots Index. Named for Terry Pratchett character Sam Vimes and his theory of socio-economic unfairness. Monroe took to Twitter after inflation recently rose to 5.4% amid widespread concern regarding an increase in the cost of living. And she spoke of her frustration that the consumer price index on which inflation is based did not adequately reflect the cost of inflation as experienced by the poorest in society. In particular, she highlighted the huge increase in supermarkets' own value brand prices over the last 10 years. For example, a 45p one kilogram bag of rice had increased to £1 for 500 grams, which is a 344% increase. I did promise you good news though, and lo, three and a half weeks later, after her initial Twitter thread on the price increases went viral, Monroe tweeted this weekend that a shop at her local Asda had revealed a huge number of products in their smart price range had been greatly reduced. Praising the supermarket chain, Monroe wrote, The turnaround for this has been almost immediate. The speed at which they responded, not just with words, but with exactly what they said they would do, has been absolutely remarkable. The impact this will have on millions of people is almost impossible to overstate. Mm. So, well done to Asda and well done to Jack. Let's hope that other supermarkets are now going to follow suit. Yes, please. Well done, Jack. That, I mean... And how satisfying to actually, in this world that does feel like it's been a bin on fire for lost count of the years, to Mm. see good people causing good change. I know, I saw someone comment something like, you know, basically Marcus Rashford and Jack Monroe have done more for people in Britain than, I don't know, 10 fucking years of... I mean, it is true, It's, it's sort of depressing in a way that it has to fall on these people, but it is very fortunate that these people exist absolutely more news next week well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week it's that time of the week where i usually talk about sexism but maybe instead i should just count all the ways i'm grateful or fight sexism with kindness while staying optimistic about an end to the constant background dribble of misogynistic horseshit Oh look, the real me, truth will out. We are once again standing in the kids' clothing aisles and when we're not screaming at the oceans of pink for girls and blue for boys or tearing our hair out at the lack of pockets and indeed material when it comes to duds for girls, and they really are duds, we're smashing our heads into a brick wall at the slogans. 
This week, that brick wall is in Primark. And while I know it's easy to slam Primark for multiple reasons, including the insane planet-damaging nature of fast fashion, a lot of people are too skint to be able to shop elsewhere. Also, telling kids via T-shirts to be good, do good, grateful, be optimistic, or indeed, be kind... Although I've got to say, various Twitterati with that in their bio, but no kindness in the reply slash hearts means the <laughs> phrase now makes me want to angry hot vomit onto their dinner. Mm. But, you know, it, it generally isn't a problem if you're telling all kids. But of course, they're only telling the girls. Oh. Ah! Slogans on the boys clothes, Jen, in case you were wondering, include explore, nothing holding you back, power, awesome adventures and future. It's quite the difference in tone, isn't it? Yeah. Author Kate Long, who is at Volwriter on the Twitter, did an excellent thread pointing out how and why this messaging is so damaging for all kids, saying it's incredibly sexist and outdated and unhelpful to both boys and girls. And she continued, stop telling girls their places to serve others. Stop telling boys they should have nothing to do with kindness and love. What are you, a throwback to the 1950s? And yeah, yeah, of course, as many people pointed out, you can buy clothes for kids from whichever feckin' aisle you choose, but that doesn't mean shops shouldn't try a lot fucking harder not to be gender stereotyping nitwits. I say shops because Primark is in no way an outlier here, and Long did a similar thread on Tesco Kids Clothing just last October. Fair's fair, a spokesperson for Primark told The Independent, we offer a diverse range of fashion and styles across our children's range to suit a broad mix of tastes and styles. Inclusivity really matters to us and we work hard across our campaign stores and products to reflect this. But we are always learning and we welcome feedback and we'll look into this further. I just don't understand. I don't understand how it happens. Like, I don't... Why does this stuff end up on the shop floor? How does it get through the number of people it must have to get through? Why is it always, like, outrage after outrage? Why can't people just fucking, like, see it? I agree with you, Jen. Why aren't they listening to our podcast? It is an excellent question. (laughs) Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by Nikki Hodgson, journalist, broadcaster and dating expert, on which note, see her book, The Curious History of Dating. Nikki, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Now, the curious history of dating does, as the tagline states, span from Jane Austen to Tinder. But I think if you asked a handful of heterosexual women currently looking for love on the very many apps that are available, they would tell you that dating's never been more of a minefield. And the fact is, and it becomes very clear in your book, it's never been easy. No, it's never been easy. I mean, there are so many reasons why, but one of the most important things is women's rights or lack of rights really affects their uh, ability to find a good match of any gender actually so one of the things that I really realised was that actually as women have more rights so for example in the 19th century they get property rights like they can they can keep what they inherit for example it doesn't automatically go to their husband upon marriage and then later on when rape in marriage is outlawed these things have a significant impact on how women manoeuvre in the dating landscape how confident they feel and what kickback they get from men, what kind of tricks get pulled on them, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So if you look at it historically, things are getting better. But what the problem is now is that we've hit a kind of time period where the apps weren't really designed to find long-term love, but that's what people are using them for. So the tool they're using to find that person isn't really designed for it. That's why there are so many issues. 
Definitely. And I've got to say, and again, this becomes very clear in your book, for people who are LGBT plus, and I am not diminishing the fact that they still have a lot of shit to wade through on a daily basis. Um, I'll also add that I'm very much talking about the UK here. But it's hard to express just how much better it is today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even in the 60s, you couldn't really date somebody that wasn't of your socioeconomic class. You couldn't date somebody that was a different race. I mean, it was really only the 60s that people, that, that kind of like mixed race relationships became anything. And they were still shocking to people as well at that time. That's very, very recent history. Definitely for the LGBT plus community, of which I'm part because I'm bisexual, the ability to be a little bit anonymous in the, in the initial stages in order to protect yourself and the ability to find somebody who's absolutely into what you're into and understands what you've gone through. You can't you can't really imagine what it was like, say, for the Victorians when they realised they were gay, which obviously people did, and uh, they tried to then go about finding somebody when it was illegal to have gay sex. That's actually what dating apps were designed for and by, because they're an offshoot of, you know, internet dating and internet ads, personal ads on the internet, which were devised by the LGBT community. So it's important to see that, again, like it's kind of funny thinking that the heterosexual community has adopted that tool, but it doesn't really fit them, doesn't really fit their purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. What made you want to look at the, you phrase it, the wows and woes of courtship throughout the ages? It actually was a very personal reason. I was having a terrible time dating. <laughs> and I'm a bit of a history nut. And I sort of thought, well, maybe if I studied how other people had done it, I might find some solutions for myself and for the people that I was working with in the dating industry, for people that I talked to, you know, women that would come up to me and say, I've just had enough, like I just can't do it anymore. I'm just I've just resigned myself to be single and because the system isn't working for me. It's not the people, it's the system. Mm-hmm. It was really that. And it was funny because when I was writing the book, I was also dating myself. I took a lot of the advice from the book and and employed it to the benefit of my own dating life and as a result I met my now husband Hooray. and that, that was it yeah so it, I definitely was very conscious of you know the judges kind of did speed dating at balls you know they would spend very little time with people they would test them out and then they would make a very firm decision about them very quickly so what I used to do I was writing the book in the British Library and I used to get people to come and meet me at lunchtime for a coffee and then after work for a coffee or a drink I had have three slots I didn't make very much effort myself I literally uh, interviewed them to see if they were suitable to go on a date with me and it was a great way of culling a lot of people did you learn the language of fans? Because I know people yes. think I know people <laughs> think that like what they're doing now is really complicated. But oh my goodness, some of the tricks they had to use because it was socially frowned upon to be outward in who you liked and why you liked them or who you didn't like because you know it wasn't necessarily going to be your decision. It was going to be your parents or social status or whatever. That they came up with all these incredible ways of showing how they felt about someone that I would have absolutely got wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fanology is really interesting because yeah. Yeah, it's basically the idea of positioning a fan on your face or your body or fanning it in a certain way which sends a message out the reason it's so interesting is because it was devised as a way of getting around the chaperones and the kind of you know if your mum was watching you you could basically do this fan language and she wouldn't know what you were doing and somebody else would be able to read the signal but of course these messages were learned you know a bit like slang how you know teenage slang gets picked up by parents and then it's mm-hmm. not fashionable anymore so the fan language kept having to change so you always had to relearn the fan language but yeah that you, you could do some quite intricate things kind of like by you know use like left cheek right cheek for different things dropping the fan meant that you'd be friends putting the fan meant to your heart meant that you love somebody and twirling the fan meant something really I think that was quite like come and see me I think it meant like come up and see me sometime so yeah it was really really amusing and also the judges had these kind of little spy glasses that they used 
that looked like they were uh, binoculars, you know, like looking out across the ballroom, but they had mirrors to the side of them. Wind so you mirrors. could see what people, yes, yeah, so you could see what people were doing on either side of you. So it's really, really sneaky. But yeah, it was all about, I'm not going to show you who I'm looking at, but I need them to look at me kind of thing. And are you looking at me? It, was, it must have been really interesting. And quite sexy, actually. Yeah, and, and also terrifying if you sometimes forget your left and your right, like I do. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think there are loads of common themes that come up, you know, like CAD's going to CAD. They're going to find a way to treat women badly. Women have never had the first footing in dating. It's always been led by men who seem to have the control. I'm not sure that's massively changed now. It's changed a lot, but I still think men have still got a bit more control over stuff. What were the common themes through the different eras that struck you? Well, I suppose, yeah, the thing about men having control is that men have it, but they never think they have it. So it creates this double bind that makes them really agitated and angsty about dating and quite sometimes misogynistic, actually, as well. But yeah, they do. They do have the upper hand because they still control, uh, generally speaking, the economic function of marriage or relationships. I mean, lots more women earn as much as men or more than men, but there's still so many women that don't. If people get married, you know, the childcare issue is major. So that is a massive factor. But in terms of looking at some of the, the kind of continuity things that I learned, dancing was, is the number one way to meet somebody and to test somebody out to see if there's actual chemistry with you, uh, with them, sorry. So throughout the ages, formal dancing has been really important. And actually, it's funny that in the end of the 20th century, we had a dip in that. And then just recently, we've kind of had a resurgence. So like salsa and... Mm-hmm merengue and like all these partner dancers people and I do together if you want to go meet someone you should really dance to try because it's just the best way of testing if they've actually got chemistry because like if they can dance if they can do that with their feet what can they do with the rest of them it's kind of the idea behind it (laughs) Um, and every every generation has cared about this I think the other thing is a kind of version of chaperones but a version that actually has your best interest at heart so back in the 18th century a chaperone was really designed to stop a woman getting into trouble you know making the wrong decision and then being kind of cast aside that a chaperone was designed to protect your honour but if you kind of take that through the generations it's kind of evolved into the wing man or the wing woman so the idea that somebody that you trust that cares about you is going to be another pair of eyes on this potential suitor and that has a lot of potency it definitely helps people make better decisions actually about who they end up with and then I think what else struck me the most was the sense that we've always actually employed some kind of technology when it's been available to help us. So it was the first, it was the bicycle, then it was the telephone, then in the 60s it was the computer. But actually, um, the idea that machines can make decisions for us that we're not capable of making for ourselves is just bunkum. We, we Algorithms <laughs> don't know better than us what we want long term, so don't trust them. It's mad, isn't it? It's because it is so complex, it is so tricky, and it is just based on chemistry, which can like make or break a, a date or a relationship. And yet, because it's so hard, we go, oh God, I don't want to be in control of this. Can someone design some technology that does all the hard thinking for me? And the answer <laughs> is no. Yeah, I think the other thing that's really important is attachment styles. So that's something that's beginning to enter the mainstream conversation around dating now. And it's basically the idea that how you loved as a child is how you will love and attach to an adult partner. So if you had a distant parent, you'll actually get on better with a distant partner or you'll be you'll be compelled by that person. Maybe they won't treat you very well, but that's what you're attracted to. And vice versa, you know, if you have somebody that's quite suffocating, you'll actually be attracted to that, but then it also might drive you mad. And then there's a bunch of people in the middle who are kind of like seen as the secure attachers, but they actually make up a very small minority of the population. So most people are in the seesaw of either being too intense or too distant. 
we all have all seen it as you get older those relationships seem to repeat again and again amongst your friends amongst mm-hmm. your peers and uh, it tends to be women that are more intense and men that are more distant it's, it's not completely always that way but that makes for a very frustrated dating pool after about the age of 30 because prior to that the secure people tend to find each other quite quickly and settle down quite quickly and then it's the other two groups of people that are left trying to figure out what they're going to do they could you could change your attachment style with with therapy with practice you can move into the middle but lots of people don't realize that so i think that is really really important to getting a grip on your dating life if, if you still feel like you keep having the wrong person come along do you think and we're very much speaking in generalizations here and from a heteronormative standpoint I think but like do you think that divergence between male and female attachment styles it's because little boys get so much more freedom still absolutely they get more freedom and there is less expectation on them to meet other people emotionally and because of that that sets them on a bad footing for their entire lives because then when men do get into trouble and they need people and they need to have a connection or a bond they don't know how to form it and then on the other hand women end up doing all the emotional labor you know like how many women do we know that are the ones that bring the romance to the relationship you know that kind of pull in that way men do the sex and women do the romance a lot of the time not always it gets very very tricky and we've got to find a way of educating our boys better about emotions so that they thrive in relationships and that women thrive too as a result Absolutely. And I think like the media has traction in this as well, because there are loads of women I know who don't want to fit in those boxes, who aren't interested, who aren't really romantically natured. And the press and various surveys and different things keep telling them, well, you're an anomaly. You're the one in the wrong here. And actually, that's bullshit as well, right? Yeah, it is. And it's much more down to personality than it is to gender. Obviously, how we're socialised affects the way that we interact with people. But yeah, I mean, I think one of the most compelling things is that most women actually when they've done scientific studies on kind of women and monogamy they don't actually enjoy it and that women's sex drive in relationships tends in long-term relationships tends to plateau or even disappear much sooner before men's does because they just like more variety and that is one of the biggest myths we're sold that monogamy suits most women it actually doesn't but it's just more convenient and everybody's too knackered to have a google <laughs> calendar full of all their other lovers like what night who what night who's getting what night you know so i think that's just, that's actually the reality of it yeah, I mean, there's definitely, there's been research done that has time and time again shown that marriage is much better for men than it is for women. Yeah, absolutely. So it's really up to women. I mean, it's not up to women because it's frustrating. You've got to get men on your side. But if women want a different kind of way of being in a long-term relationship, they've got to really press on for it. But we've got to talk about it more as a society as well. Totally. Now, there's clearly loads and loads of research that has gone into your book. So I wondered what discoveries most surprised you i think one of them was the way that lgbt plus people met in the past mm. in the victorian era there was basically sex tourism if you were a gay man you could go to this takes off to like lord byron and then there were a whole crew of people later on that used to go to the greek islands and basically yeah go and meet guys i just didn't really know that, that was a thing and also there were drag balls in the victorian era so people would literally go secret drag balls they would dress up and then they would go you know just as the gender they felt they were and, and go and interact with people that way and in the 1930s they placed messages to each other in celebrity magazines so they would go on about wanting a pen pal that was like really into an actor of the age that everybody knew was gay and therefore that was a signal that i'm looking for another gay man to write to kind of thing so i really loved finding those little secret ways that people have always met despite the restrictions from society on their sexuality and then i think the fact that lots of people have just always had casual sex 
we have all these myths told to us about Victorians. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, in the mid-19th century, a third of all working-class brides at the altar were already pregnant before they got married. I love that myth so, about the Victorians, yeah. that they were really prudish. when they, Actually, they were obsessed with sex. They were <laughs> they obsessed. They were obsessed. It's always been easier as well, hasn't it? Looking at the Victorians, the Jordans, all of the eras that you cover in the book, it's always been the case that men are kind of, even though it was frowned upon slightly, still expected to be the ones to go and sow their wild oats. And women, absolutely, you hang on to your honour. That is your thing. That is like the, the little pearl inside of you. And it's like, well, who did they think these men were sleeping with then? It's just so hypocritical. <laughs> It really is. I mean, like there are so many stories of Victorian gentlemen having a maidservant in the attic that they basically go and have sex with when either their wife is pregnant or they don't want to get her pregnant, you know. And I think it is really alarming thinking about how men have absolutely separated out the good women from the bad, the women that they have sex with, the women that they have children with and have love with. The great even of that has been contraception for women. Being able to take control of your of whether you get pregnant or not means that you can then decide whether you have casual sex or not but 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 saying that attitudes still haven't caught up with the contraception exactly. we are still very judgmental about women in casual sex and i don't know how long it's going to take for that to change actually i don't know i don't know if it'll be in our lifetime i don't think it will be i think we're looking at another 100 years another 200 years i think until men suffer more of the physical and the emotional pains of childcare, they won't really think too much about that. I agree with you. Now, inevitably, there are some really meaty, big, sad topics in, in there. AIDS, racism, homophobia, couple of world wars. So many powerful forces have made getting it on very tricky indeed. So it does make me think like when we're looking at stuff, when I was on the dating apps and I just felt like, oh, exhausted by it a lot of the time and you just get men being dicks or just... I ended up feeling that like I was really judgmental and a dick and, and shallow and it, and it's a real mental ringer. But then I was like, but at least there's not a war on. And I think we forget <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how much harder stuff was just because of the way society was or law was or the world was. Absolutely. Although I've got to say, having researched both the First World War and the Second World War for the book, people had a wonderful time. <laughs> I feel like they were having way more sex, going to way more parties than we were, certainly like way more than we've been doing during the pandemic. I think what's maybe fascinating is that that feeling of they didn't know if they were going to survive, they didn't know if they were going to be here next week, allowed them to do the things that they actually wanted to do sexually. And, you know, when, when the wars ended, there were so many women that were pregnant with babies that weren't their partners. And there was lots of kind of, oh, let's all just go back to normal and pretend all this stuff hasn't happened. Mm -hmm. I think one of the saddest episodes that I sort of uncovered was the the number of relationships between white British women and black GIs that came over from America and how they weren't allowed to get married by mm -hmm. American law. And many of them had babies and their babies were taken into care because they were mixed race. And it's just so devastating thinking that, again, quite recent history, we could be so draconian and judgmental about who gets to love who. Definitely. So that shocked me. But in other, you know, if you look at the kind of, <laughs> the thrill of going to a dance with GIs and they were bringing you silk stockings and tinned peaches and you might get a shag at the end of it. I mean, it sounds wonderful. Like, it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I think there were, there were definitely downsides to the war though. <laughs> yeah, a few downsides too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in your opinion... What was the best era for dating? If you could go back in time to any of the eras that you've researched, where would you go? Husband notwithstanding, by the way. Oh, yeah. I, 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 I'd already forgotten about him, don't worry. <laughs> um, 
that is a really good question. Well, I think the 1920s would have been quite fun. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say that is because I'm bisexual and the 1920s was the first time that lots of women got to go to kind of like clubs, jazz clubs with each other. And basically if they wanted to be with girls because a load of guys being killed in the First World War, they did. That's like my alternative lesbian life that I fantasise about sometimes. I find that really fascinating because it was like the first time women had jobs properly after the war. You know, they were going into, they were going to be teachers, they were working in offices, they were journalists. There would have been something really thrilling about earning your own money, shacking up with a load of girls, having kind of like girls gone wild party night, just feeling free. It's funny because there's not that much correspondence or letters kept from that period, I suspect because a lot of them were destroyed, actually, because lots of people kind of, you know, it was still very taboo to be interested in women. When Mary Stopes came along and she introduced like the first contraception clinic and she wrote her book Married Love, basically it was a handbook about all the things you needed to know about sex that she hadn't found out because her husband basically never had sex with her. She apparently replied by hand to every letter that people sent her about their sex lives, but she wouldn't address any of them that were about lesbianism or having affection for other women. And I just find that it's like very important that somebody who was heralded as a kind of, you know, a light at that time, somebody who was seen as very forward thinking, wasn't able to address that issue. Let's come bang up to date again. For anyone listening who's maybe thinking of dipping a toe into dating apps or is simply exhausted like I was by the negging and the ghosting and the inane bants and the lack of commitment and the sheer, this feels like a full-time fucking job-ness of looking for love, lust, whatever's tickling your pickle. What are the key things to keep you sane in these shark and indeed chump infested waters? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first thing is if you're going to use dating apps, be very selective about what you actually do on them. And by that, I mean, you've got to limit your time on them. So that you've got to feel that you are not getting sucked into the vortex and that they are taking loads of hours up from you and there's very little to show at the end of it. Mm -hmm. So don't spend more than five minutes a day swiping and looking at messages. If you're swiping, don't swipe on more than nine faces because after that point we have cognitive overload we can't really process people and we can't make a good decision between the options that we've already got that's excellent so limit advice your, yeah limit your choices that's been proven by dr helen fisher who's like the world's leading anthropologist on on uh, relationships and dating don't ping pong message get them off the messaging and onto whatsapp if you can because it's encrypted it's safe you know people can't find you and get them to a date a physical date as quickly as possible and make that date for a short Make it a coffee outside your workplace. Make it a coffee outside your home working office, you know. Get them to come to you. Give them half an hour. You will know in the first two minutes if you fancy them and you want to see them again. So don't give them a whole evening. Definitely don't have dinner with them at any cost. Now, my tip that I always thought was pretty good was buy the first round and then you do not feel any kind of obligation to stay yeah. for another one because you don't owe them a drink. Absolutely. One drink, what's it going to cost you? A couple of quid and then you're free to go if you hate them. So yeah, that's a really good tip. <laughs> the Curious History of Dating is published by Robinson and is out now in paperback and it's cracking. It was really, really fascinating read. So thank you very much. What else are you up to, Nikki? Well, I've got a podcast called Bisexual Brunch, which is all about, yeah, being bisexual, those different kind of relationships, how we navigate them, how we think uh, bisexuality is going do we think society cares what is it like to come out now how can we encourage more people to feel safe to come out and I am writing another book but that's actually about mental health 
So it's not going to be so much about sex. It's going to be about a sordid time that I spent in America when I was researching the porn industry and they basically ended up having a breakdown. The two things are not necessarily linked, but there's lots <laughs> of like, it's very dark. There's lots of sex and drama in it. And there's lots of, there's lots of positive stuff about how you sort your mental health out after having a kind of a breakdown and a breakup. I'm in. And where can people find out what you're up to? Are you on the socials? Yeah, so mainly my Instagram, which is at Nikki Hodgson. I'm on Twitter, but I don't really use it. People just tend to lob a political abuse at me for when I pop up on the news. Nikki, thank you so much for chatting with me. Oh, thanks for having me. Hi, Hannah here. I am joined over the Zoom all the way from Kansas by writer Andrea Warren. Hello, Andrea. Thanks for joining us. Hello. Nice to be here. Your latest book for children, Enemy Child, is out in paperback now. The timing is actually great on that because we are also approaching the 80th anniversary of Executive Order 9066, which for people over here, that might not mean anything. But that required all people of Japanese descent, regardless of whether they were American citizens or not, to report to internment camps, which they were in for the duration of the war. That's correct. So before we get into that story, which I have read and I absolutely loved, I wanted to start by asking you, how did you end up as the author of children's history books? Was that what you set out to do? It was sort of a long and winding path. I grew up fairly isolated in a little town in northeast Nebraska, but it was a town that had its own kind of history because it had a lot of immigrant history. People from Scandinavia, my family came in as outsiders when my father was hired to be superintendent of schools there. And I think because I had that kind of outside perspective, I wasn't related to anybody in the community. And yet it seemed like everybody I knew was related to somebody else. Everybody had cousins and grandparents and aunts and uncles. And my family was this sort of isolated little unit. And when you come in like that, you know, I think you tend to observe things differently. And it also, as a kid, I didn't know anything about my own family history. And that only started coming to light later. It just wasn't anything my family had taken a lot of interest in trying to track or anything. But I always had been drawn to stories of the past. I'd always loved historic fiction. I came to nonfiction also through our little public library that we had there. And I'd always had an interest in writing and I ended up becoming a journalist. I had an occupation as a teacher for 11 years first. And it was the, the, the teaching, that real interest in young people the interest in history, the love of writing that finally, starting in my late 40s, pulled me into this career I have now as a writer of nonfiction history for young readers. I genuinely, when I was reading Enemy Child, I genuinely wished that you'd been writing books when I was younger because all of my reading as a child was about World War II. I was totally obsessed by it because there was a huge amount of books at that time, fiction stories that were about kids that had been evacuated or about kids that had remained, you know, at home and and lived through bombing and the Blitz and those things. And I, I just loved, loved historical novels when I was a kid. Absolutely loved them. You're not writing historical novels, you're writing actual history. But what I was really struck by when I read Enemy Child this week was you don't hide hard truths from them and I wanted to ask you is that the key to talking to children about history? It certainly is one of them. I knew again from teaching, I knew from parenting, I knew from adopting a daughter out of a war zone, she was born during the Vietnam War, that kids know a lot more about the realities of life than we ever give them credit for and that they appreciate honesty and directness. 
sometimes been asked how I developed a writing style for writing for younger audiences. And in the beginning, that question kind of mystified me because I had never tried to develop a style. I simply wrote clear, direct sentences, but those were the kinds of sentences I wrote when I wrote for adults as well. I think that was the training that came through journalism. You know, I have a book called Charles Dickens and the Street Children of London, so I've actually poked into your history. (laughs) And one of the things that I learned from Dickens was that his training came from his fairly brief career as a journalist. You go looking for the facts, you go looking for the most important part of the story, you want little tidbits that are the most impactful, and you want to get it all there. You want to answer all of the questions. I just have chosen to do it through the stories, through the viewpoints of young readers. And I know that, again, as a teacher, that anytime kids were reading about somebody like themselves, anybody, it didn't have to be them. It didn't have to be the same gender, the same sex, the same nationality, just that they were similar in age and kids would latch right onto those. So I I could see instantly that that was the way to go about this. The first topic I chose to try was the story of the orphan trains in America. And because those were the stories of kids, I thought it was just kind of a no-brainer to write Mm -hmm. this for kids. They're the ones who are going to really hop aboard that train with those kids and go looking for new homes. So let's talk about Enemy Child, which is the, the story of Norman Manetta, who was 11 when he went into an internment camp. And, I mean, obviously still alive. Almost 90. I suppose one of the last people left who can really give a first-hand account of what it was like to be in the camps. I wonder if you could tell me how you discovered Norman's story and why you thought that this was something that you wanted to write. I was finishing research on the book I did previously to Enemy Child. It's called The Boy Who Became Buffalo Bill. So I was looking into the the history of Buffalo Bill Cody, and that took me to Cody, Wyoming, a town he founded, and into the archives there. And while I was in Cody, I was there for several days, and there was this poster that I saw, and it mentioned the opening of the Heart Mountain Relocation Center Museum. Uh, they were actually were calling it an interpretive center. A lot of people would look at it as, a, as, as that and as a museum. And that it was 13 miles outside of town and visitors were welcome. I just had to think for a minute, war relocation center. And then it, it struck me as like, oh, that was the Japanese American internment camps. It wasn't something I knew much about. I knew a little bit about it. I've always felt something of a connection to Japan, having traveled there. My father fought in the South Pacific during World War II and was stationed for the invasion of Japan at the end of the war. So there's always been kind of a draw there. And so I went to visit. And as I was walking through this interpretive center and starting to learn the history of what happened on that spot, because that's where the interpretive center is, where one of the camps was, There was just a flood of emotions. You know, it goes from how could this ever have happened and who were the people who were put here and why and what was it like for them? What were their lives like, their daily lives, and how did it affect them? I'm always interested in that. What's the after story? I do this with every book I write. I want to know where did this take you in your life and how did you respond to it and how did you make something positive come out of that? That's present in every book I've done. And came up Uh, across kind of a display there about Norman Mineta and his friendship with Alan Simpson, who was a very conservative member of the Senate for many years here in the United States. Everybody knows who Alan Simpson was. And as a boy, because Simpson is from Cody, he had come with his local Boy Scout troop into Heart Mountain to meet for a day with 
Boy Scout troop in Heart Mountain. And Norm and Alan were paired up to spend the day together. And they were, you know, 11 years old, as you said. And who would expect that this would have a lifelong influence on these two future men? But they didn't forget each other. And they ended up together in Congress. Norm as a representative from the state of California. Alan, as I said, is a senator. He, conservative Republican, Norm, a liberal to moderate Democrat. They renewed this friendship that had begun as boys and began working together across the aisle. I mean, there, it's a, a wonderful political story there, yeah. you know, that shows what's possible in our country, which right now, as you know, is very divisive mm-hmm. in terms yeah. of its Republicans and Democrats. And very significantly, they worked together for the passage of the law that would give reparations to the Japanese Americans the first time in American history that's happened. I think uh, to this point, still pretty much the only, the only real significant one, even though there's much, 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 much talk and debate here about uh, reparations for our black citizens. The bill probably couldn't have gone through without Simpson's help in getting Republicans to come aboard on it. So the reparations and the apology from the president of the United States also very, very important to the Japanese Americans to clear them completely of of something they were totally innocent from, but which destroyed a lot of lives, changed lives forever. Yeah. We don't learn about this in the UK. Obviously, it didn't happen here, but it doesn't mean it's not interesting. We do have our own sort of history. We did round up a lot of Italians and put them. In fact, my godmother, her father was Italian and he spent the entire of the Second World War in in an internment camp in the UK. So we're not without sin ourselves, I would say. Can I ask you, do young children learn about this in school in America or are they learning something new? And either way, how have they been responding to this story? You know, the history books, the history textbooks in America, they're changing, shall we say, slowly, but they're changing. And I think an awful lot of the change starts in the school library, because so many authors are now tackling these really tough subjects in American history. They get the books published, the books come into the library, and kids are getting exposed. But, you know, you probably also know we have a lot of controversy in this country about what we're going to allow to be taught to our Mm, kids regarding our treatment of minorities. And this is one of those topics So this has been a touchy one, and I didn't grow up knowing anything anything about it, anything. I came to it through literature and through reading a couple of of novels about it later. So that's where I knew something about it, just not very much. It's appearing now, you know, in the the latest round of textbooks. They don't come out that often. Our textbooks are often very outdated here. You're lucky if you get new ones once a decade. So it's, it's in there. The information is in there, but just in terms of fact, not in terms of the backstory, the emotional story, the consequences to families. You know, as we talk about reparations for black families today, you know, you've got to look at the what was the economic impact of slavery on people today. And the same is so true with the Japanese Americans, because those who were put in these camps, there were an estimated 150,000 Japanese Americans in this country when World War to started and 120,000 of them, so certainly a majority, but not all of them, were put in the camps, the ones within 50 miles of the Pacific coastland, because there was fear that those people living along the, the Pacific coast would help with a Japanese invasion. There, there was never any grounds for that, no bases, 
no acts of sabotage ever uncovered, but that was the fear. There was this general fear. There were fear of Italian-Americans and German-Americans, too, and some of them also were put in camps, but they were too big a part of the population. The Japanese stood out by their names and where they lived, and a lot of them were Buddhist and their looks. So it's happening, but I think it's going to take, I think, another decade and maybe another generation to really get the whole story there. And it will happen as it is happening with the stories of what we did to our Native Americans, to all minorities here. We have a pretty dismal record for a country that supposedly is so welcoming. You know, give me your tired, your poor. Yeah, Yeah. well, (laughs) nice words, but... I knew a little bit about this because Ken Burns, it's how I know about most American history. Yeah. Because in his documentary yeah. about the war, um, he mentioned this. And that's also how I know about the 442nd, which is something else you talk about in this book. Yes. I think the 442nd, which was for people listening who maybe don't know, was the unit that any Japanese Americans volunteer who volunteered to serve. That was the, the, the group they went to. And it is the most decorated American unit in history. And I think it's, that's really interesting because I think that's the perfect example of how you can use a historical fact to prove a point one way or the other. For example, you could say... That meant that the 442nd were the bravest, you know, the the boldest. Or you could say they were put in the most danger throughout the war, which I think is probably closer to the truth, isn't it? It's probably closer to the truth, but they still responded in ways that too few Americans know about, that know about that story. And I, I was insistent when I was outlining the book that I cover that. You know, my editor said it feels like we're taking this a bit far a bit adrift let's just mention it let's not do a whole section on it I said no it's a whole section it was very controversial in the camps for these young Japanese American men to volunteer some of them were drafted you know that it was getting later in the war and manpower is really needed in the beginning anybody who was a Japanese American and in the armed services were dismissed except for a cadre and actually a very, very important group of people who were so fluent in both English and Japanese that the government needed them. And they played a vital role in winning the war against Japan because of their ability to translate. There are all kinds of stories of the things they did, and we won't go into that. But in terms of young men serving in the 442nd, you know, someone were drafted and said, You're, you, you have to go. And they would say, I refuse. You, you, the U.S. government has imprisoned my family. If you let my family out of that prison camp, I will gladly serve, but I will not willingly serve. And they ended up going to prison, a lot of them, because of their refusal to serve. Then there were those who said, I'm going to go. I love the United States. This is my country. I'm going to go fight for it. And I'm going to show you that you're wrong about what you're doing to my country. So they went and formed the core of the 442nd, as you said. They, of course, had white officers, just like the Civil War. And they were indeed sent straight into harm's way. They were not in big numbers sent to the Pacific because we knew, unfortunately, from experience, that if they were captured by the Japanese, they were tortured before they were Mm. killed. You know, they were going to be killed no matter what. So off to Italy, they go particularly and into France. And there are places in France where they hold celebrations every year to celebrate the Japanese American troops who came in and liberated them. They helped liberate Dachau, the concentration camp. And when the army found out about that, they, believe this or not, restaged the photos of the liberation of Dachau to eliminate Japanese-American soldiers because they sure didn't want anybody back home in America seeing the Japanese-Americans in these very heroic positions. And there are these stories That makes me furious. 
<laughs> stories of what they did in Italy, the hand-to-hand combat, the taking of one mountain after another uh, to defeat the Germans, indescribable what they did. And yeah. a lot of them were doing it just to defend their, their nationality, to defend the, their people back home. To show they were American. They were Americans. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. You have written loads of books for kids. I know that you're in the process of turning one of them into a play. I am. My best-selling book is uh, a World War II book. It's called Surviving Hitler, A Boy in the Nazi Death Camps. And I took that one on as a challenge. I literally had to say to myself, am I capable? Can I do it? I had a, a number of books out by then. They were all doing well. I had been appearing on a panel for educators, and I was on this panel with some librarians and teachers, and they were talking about the difficulty, you know, we mandated here in the United States, in most states, not all, that the Holocaust be in the curriculum, that it be taught. And teachers would say that, you know, they run into this issue all the time with the camps. The camps were so horrific. When they're teaching World War II history, they can't figure out how to get, try going around it instead of through it. And there are always kids always stopping. And what happened? What was that all about? Mm. And they just didn't have any materials to give them. The materials they had were just too graphic. Ellie Vassell's Night. Anne Frank is a wonderful book, but it's the story of a young woman in hiding, or a young teenager, with her family. And she has her family surrounding her and trying to protect her. I became interested in the story of what happens to a young person who's out in the open with no adult protection and has to figure this out on their own. And they're in this most horrific of circumstances. You know, I was really wanting the emotional, the psychological journey. Anybody can get the facts. They're out there. But that interior story is what I was after. And we have a large survivor community here in Kansas City, where I live. And I was not acquainted with people there. But I'm not Jewish. But I thought that the resources might be there and indeed found wonderful stories, great stories, and settled on one, the story of Jack Mandelbaum. And he was the perfect candidate for this because... Unlike many of the survivors, he was willing to dig deep and give it all up and remember Mm -hmm. every emotion he had felt and the the circumstances. And so that's the story. I am commissioned by the Jewish Community Center here to to write it as a play. It'll go on stage in April. And it's an exciting venture. Yeah, that's really exciting. Just things being on now after nearly two years of there just being nothing on. The idea that, that things are coming to fruition now is fantastic. Talking of which, I have one last question for you, Andrea. We're always living through history, but at the moment, it really feels like we're living through history. What do you think that future generations will make of how our children now are experiencing the pandemic? You know, that's a great question. And I think history gives us all kinds of clues to that. What we're going through is horrible, but we're certainly not the first to go through something of this magnitude. And I think we can look at history and get our answers there. I mean, I I don't think we can go clear back to, say, the plagues back in the Middle Ages. Uh, We probably can't because people didn't leave us enough. They left us fragments of their thoughts. Today, there's so much written down, so much that future generations are going to have way more to read about than they're ever going to want to. But I, I do think that the world, you know, we're dealing with some, some great difficulties here and we're meeting them. You know, we're, we're meeting this head on. Uh, every challenge that we're facing is, is just people being people. You're struggling with it there. We're struggling with it here. And the struggles aren't over. But if you, if you stop and look at how far we've come in a year in terms of our scientific knowledge, yeah. it's remarkable and I think that's going to be part of the story in the future is science coming to the aid of humanity here getting on top of this that'll always be 
a very interesting part of it. And there will be the, the, the other stories, the fallout in your country politically, the fallout in my country politically, and in many other places. We, we don't know, but we'll, we'll make it through. This is our yeah. great challenge for our generation. We have many others, too. Climate change is the one we also need to really be thinking about. Yeah. yeah. And we are. When I was reading Enemy Child, and I'm thinking, Norman's not getting an education that this really valuable part of his life. I found it interesting that I could still find that quite shocking, given that I know lots of children that haven't really had much of an education themselves in the past year or so. So I think even we will look back and go, wow, I completely forgot that that happened, because it's so outrageous to try and get your head around what happened. And it happened so quickly, didn't it? It was just... Yes. Just there's this strange disease in China. Suddenly we were shut in our houses. Even now I can't quite get my head around what happened during during the last two years. I think it will take a while for it all to sink in and for us to work out what it's done to all of us. I think another interesting aspect will be why, again, this is United States. It had to become a political issue. You know, the, the whole issue of masks, for example, which just goes on constantly here. It's become really politicised here, to be honest, as well. Yeah, our ability to fight over even things that should be uniting us is, it never ceases to amaze me, to be honest. Andrea, where can people find out more? My website is my name, Andrea Warren, all one word, andreawarren.com. Genuinely really recommend Enemy Child. It's really fascinating, and I think youngsters will get a lot from it. Thank you so much for your time, Andrea. This has been really terrific. Thank you, Hannah. It's been a, a great pleasure. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks, that time of the week where we declare game, set and match to the sisterhood as we discuss all things women's sport. So I'm going to apologise. First up, I am in the roof of... Not, not the roof, like it's not like in an attic or anything. It's It's an actual room, but it is in the roof of the building... And it is raining quite heavily, so I hope you're not picking up on too much of that. Otherwise, you know, we'll call it atmospheric. This is like Frankenstein, but, you know, with less, like, grave robbing, hopefully. Anyway, the Winter Olympics are still ongoing, and Great Britain have yet to bag a single solitary medal. Oh, this is where the rain comes in handy. Pathetic fallacy, yeah? Frankenstein. Anyway... It's 30 years since we last left a Winter Olympics with a grand total of zero medals. So, fingers crossed that the mighty, mighty curlers of Great Britain can pull something out of the bag. What else is happening in Beijing? Well, the controversies just keep a-coming as Russian figure skater Kamila Valieva is being allowed to compete despite failing a drugs test. The drug in question is trimetazidine. I think that's how you say it, most commonly used to treat angina. It's funny how many elite level athletes seem to have taken drugs commonly used to treat angina. You'd think angina would be rather less common in elite level athletes aged, you know, 15 years old as Valieva is, but I'm not a doctor. Apparently, a court ruled that a provisional suspension shouldn't be reimposed after Valieva's team hypothesised that the positive test could have been returned after, wait for it, she drank from the same glass of water as her grandfather, whose saliva could have gotten into the glass, saliva that could have contained traces of her grandfather's heart medication. 
Like I say, I'm not a doctor. I don't know about the sensitivity of these tests. I'll let you decide how plausible that all sounds. Anyway, shall we have some better news? I've got lots, actually. Uh, first up, the announcement that Caitlyn Jenner's racing team, the imaginatively named Jenner Racing, will compete in the W Series 2022 season, which this year includes eight Formula One support races on Grand Prix weekends. So look, I personally don't give a crap about the celebrity of it all but Jenna is a big name and bound to create interest and global interest at that so I see that as a big deal for the sport and good news. More good news I mean kind of except the Wimbledon is already really fucking expensive but from an equality perspective and from an interest perspective it was announced last week that ticket prices for the men's and women's finals of the All England Lawn and Tennis Club will be for the first time in 31 years the same price this year. The reason for that we've got a female player in Emma Raducanu who can compete at the highest possible level and who people want to see play. So I'm just going to throw it out there the next logical step is giving us five sets. Yeah, this good news today alludes to it. But if you want further confirmation, research published by the brilliant Women's Sport Trust this week revealed that 2021 was a record-breaking year for women's sport. According to the research, 32.9 million people watched domestic women's sport last year with the 100, a new mixed cricket tournament and the Women's Super League bringing 11 million new viewers. 11 million new viewers is a lot, right? And what's more, those new viewers went on to watch other women's sport. So the Women's Sport Trust said that 71% of the hundreds new 4.9 million viewers also went on to watch other women's sport, including tennis and football. And also, interestingly, 25% of the viewers watching England women's cricket team or the hundred did not watch any men's cricket so one presumes there were not existing cricket fans also 6.2 million people who'd watched a WSL match live on TV had not watched a Premier League game on TV so what's making the difference well a lot of it is free to air which you can ask yourself questions about are we undermining the value of women's sport should sport even cost money to watch at all I think you can legitimately look at it from both ends of the spectrum but without getting too deep into the morals of it all i think we've got to start somewhere and putting it in front of people shows that there's an audience and a growing demand and you know create the demand and then well it's basic economics in it if you're interested in a more long-winded examination of sports viewing habits equality in men's and women's sport and the late stage capitalism drams of men's football I'm just going to throw it out there. I cover all this in my forthcoming book, The Year of the Robin, but with added familial and pandemic bants, along with quite a few swears, to be honest. You can pre-order it from Waterstones now. And I'm not going to lie to you, I am going to be repeating these plugs a few times over the coming months. That's all for me this week, and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film that we watched this week made me have to go outside for a massive rage scream? Oh God, I'm sorry. Do you know, I almost pecked Black Hawk Down and I thought neither of you would like it and I really wish that I had. But anyway, this week we watched Ferris Bueller's Day Off, released in the US in 1986 and here in February 1987. As discussed last week, 
Jen and I had never seen this before, so I'd like to take this opportunity to say sorry, Jen. You could have gone your whole life without seeing this, and I ruined it. Written and directed by John Hughes, who apparently whipped up the script in less than a week. No shit. (laughs) It stars Matthew Broderick as the titular tit, Jennifer Grey as his sister, Alan Ruck as his best friend, and Charlie Sheen as an uncanny prediction of his own future. (laughs) The 10th highest grossing film of the year, it takes us on a jaunt around Chicago landmarks as Ferris decides to pull a sickie from school and later dress it up as an attempt to save his best mate's sanity. It's in the Library of Congress, as some people seem to enjoy it. Why? Well, we'll get to the head-scratching, because I don't even need to pretend to not know if you two like this, given you've both sent me WhatsApp messages containing some fierce cursing. Not at me, (laughs) right enough. Although, had you, I'd have thoroughly earned it. Some people did like this film, however. It has 80% on Rotten Tomatoes and Broderick got a Golden Globe nomination. There were dissenting voices. The word Reaganism popped up in a lot of reviews I read. But for the most part, everyone seemed to think it was all a bit of fun. There's been some academic chat about the film's significance too. I'd just like to draw your attention to one analysis by Ros Caveney, which says that, quote... What Ferris Bueller brings to the teen genre, ultimately, is a sense of how it is possible to be cool and popular without being rich or a sports hero. What? To which I'd say, one, have you seen the size of his house? And two, I'm sure being easy on the eye helps. The plot, should you still be in the sweet bliss of ignorance that Jen used to live in, <laughs> goes thus... I wish the listeners could see mine and Jen's faces because we're not just quietly listening. We both look like we've been hit by a truck. (laughs) Ferris, who is 17 or 18, decides to take a day off school by conning his parents into thinking he is sick. His mum, who has seemingly stolen Olivia Newton-John's hair, I think (laughs) works in real estate but can't put 10 pieces of paper together back in the right order. His dad works in the city, appears to have face blindness and could have been played by the word dad written on a piece of paper and taped to the end of a stick. They obviously favour their son over their daughter, but even so, Ferris feels hard done by because he doesn't have a car as they bought him a computer instead. Just to revisit that Not Rich review, in 1987 in our house, we shared one handheld Snoopy tennis between the three of us. Anywho, not content with doing what most teenage boys would do, with time on their hands, which is watch shit films and masturbate, Ferris bullies his friend Cameron, who is also at homesick, to go into the city with him. Bullies him into taking his dad's precious classic car. Bullies him into letting him drive. Bullies him into parking it somewhere he doesn't want to. You get the picture. He's like Ziggy Sabotka if you take away all of the nuances and past trauma that makes Ziggy sympathetic. Ferris also ropes in his girlfriend, a personality vacuum called, nah, I don't care, and invokes the wrath of his headmaster, who embarks on a personal crusade to catch Ferris out. A plot so stupid, you wouldn't think it could be topped, but oh wait, here comes the C plot, in which his sister Jeannie, who knows Ferris is swinging the lead, grows increasingly annoyed by the fact that everyone in the entire town seems to care about the fact that her brother is sick. Long and short, the skiving teens crash around Chicago being dicks, which peaks when they discover, like some sort of miracle... An inexplicably stationary and also 
inexplicably midweek parade Ferris can show <laughs> off at. The car gets trashed, but Ferris snatches victory from the jaws of defeat when Cameron decides to take the blame, as it's about time he stood up to his dad. He then, get this, thanks Ferris, who basically pretends that this was his plan all along, because who faces consequences in this film? Oh, wait up, it's Jeannie, who finds herself alone in the house with what she thinks is an intruder. And when the police are called, Olivia Newton mom turns up to tell them that she <laughs> thinks her daughter probably made it up. Hashtag don't believe her. Hashtag I only really care about my son. Hashtag until he puts me in a nursing home. But it's not all bad news for Jeannie, because if she's lucky, Charlie Sheen might fuck the uptightness out of her. The end. No, wait, please, someone walk the fucking dog. The end. <laughs> so I'm going to start with a question I didn't read well-loved novel The Catcher in the Rye until I was in my 30s and I hated it I hated it do you think the same thing has happened here I saw Ferris Bueller's Day Off years and years ago I wasn't a teen when I saw it so I was like 10 when it came out I didn't see it then and I think I saw it in my 20s because it was a cult classic and I fucking hated it then which is why at the end of last week when you said oh we've never seen it and I went wowzers this is going to be interesting <laughs> particularly given our thoughts on previous John Hughes films with the exceptions of Home Alone, Uncle Book and Planes, Trains and Automobiles anything with John Candy in it basically mm. but yeah, I did the same with Catching the Right and fucking hated it because it's just, this is where white male entitlement comes yeah. from, writ large. Can I share my notes that I made for Ferris Bueller's Day Off? They're quite, quite short. Yeah, mm -hmm. so just the word fuck. It says, entitled white male, proper little shit. Whole film is insufferably smug, self-indulgent, flatulent shit. Also uses black people as props. Mm. I'm Team Genie. <laughs> Jen, will you ever forgive me? My one note on the film is what I sent you in a WhatsApp message on Saturday morning after I'd finished watching it on Friday night, which was, this is a film about white male entitlement. Ferris is a cunt. <laughs> that's, that's it. <laughs> um, yes, I will forgive you. I had a flatmate at university who is still um, unbelievably a very good friend of mine, Charlie, if you're listening. He loved this film and uh he had it on dvd and he would watch it and i think very is, is he a white male well. he is and he is basically ferris bueller but less cunty the thing is everyone in this is awful like the mum is vile the dad is as you say like a fucking could just be a broom or whatever broom in um, a suit the sister, who you should have more sympathy with, but she's such a bellend herself, it's kind of hard. Like, if you have sympathy for anyone in the film, it is for her, but she's pretty unlikable herself. And, like, borderline obsessed with her stupid brother. There's not enough words to describe how insufferable that little prick is. Mm. If you had a lifetime of that, I imagine it would become an obsession. And so it's even more unfathomable to me why, in the end, she saves his punk ass. Mm. Yeah. And it's really annoying the, what they do with Charlie Sheen. And she's got, like, a personality, hasn't she? And she's quite feisty and whatever. And she's reduced this, like, simpering mess because Charlie Sheen snogged her or whatever. I don't even know. Does he snog her? Do they snog? Yeah. They yeah. have a snog in the police station. I have way more sympathy for Jeannie 
as Mick said, because she genuinely calls the police because there's an intruder in the house. Her mother says that she's lying, Mm. basically. Then takes her home, berates her for the fact that she's lost a business deal because of this. And she was going to buy Ferris a car with that business deal. And somehow Jeannie's supposed to still have the will to live when that's the way her mother sees <laughs> yeah, her. Yeah, her mother's horrible. She's The mother is really unpleasant. Yeah. No one's as unpleasant as no. Ferris, though. Can no, we get back to slagging him This is the only silver he, lining. He's a child and the mother is not, so, you know. But you're right. Let's get back to the, the actual... I mean, I don't like to blame mothers, but, you know, there's a clear reason the way that, that he's the way he is. And it's the way his parents treat him. Can we talk about whether we think Matthew Broderick is convincing as a 17 or 18 year old? How old is he in this? 23. I thought 23. Your maths is better than mine, Mickey, maybe. I worked it out as 24. I don't know. I don't think he's not convincing. Do you? I mean, he's not the T-birds who all look like they're in the 40s. <laughs> like 85, <laughs> he's got a Zimmer frame. Like the main one, Kanicki, is like... 12,000 years old. He has been held back at school a lot, Jen. But we di- we digress. No, but I just don't think... Okay, at 17 or 18, and I know it's different in America than it is over here, but like, fucking hell, if you didn't want to go to school, you just didn't go to school. You didn't have to make up all this mm. shit. Mm. Yeah. To me, quite a lot of, of his personality is is summed up in the fact that it's not just that he doesn't... He won't let Cameron drive the car. It's that... He doesn't even let Cameron sit in the front seat. Cameron has to sit wedged in mm. the back. And then he has this fucking epic rant about Cameron's future hypothetical girlfriend who will treat him like shit yeah. because she won't respect him. And I think, you don't fucking respect him, <laughs> mate. What he needs is not to stand up to his dad. Well, possibly he does, but, you know, not just because it's a convenient plot point to get you out of trouble. What he needs to do is stand up to you. Definitely. Ferris is a terrible friend. He's a terrible boyfriend. He's a terrible son. He's a terrible brother. He's a terrible human. It's a terrible film. And I'm terribly sad I had to watch it again. Yeah. The only thing I'd like to add to that is that big baseball matches generally don't take place like in the afternoon midweek either. Yeah. Do you know what one possibility was? Because I fell down a little Ferris Bueller conspiracy theory wormhole. And one possibility is it's all in Cameron's head. And Ferris is the person that he really wants to be. Hence why all of these things that wouldn't happen, like the parade, like the baseball game, just fall into Ferris's lap. Because that's who Cameron would really like to be if he wasn't depressed and in bed sad. I think that's probably fair, isn't it? That is, I think that is who Cameron wants to be, isn't it? Because he says yes. that thing at the parade, he's like, oh, it's all right if you're Ferris, isn't it? He just gets yeah. away with everything, doesn't he? Yes, he does. Mm. He does. Yeah. He does live an extremely charmed existence. Correct, Cameron. Another theory is it's like Groundhog Day and the reason that Ferris can, like, at the end, even just get the thing in the bin straight away and scores all of these wins and knows how to set up the answer machines and knows the little pranks to pull to make sure he gets away with everything is because he has lived this day so many times before he has managed to finesse it. And I just think that is another way of excusing Ferris's terrible behaviour. And I would say that's uh, another way of excusing how shit this film is, yes. by trying to drag yeah. the plot of another, lay the plot of another film on top of it in order to mm. make it seem less terrible. But also, you can see, like, I don't want to compare the two because it's poor Home Alone, but, like, he's reused a lot of yeah. stuff there, hasn't he? He's reused an awful lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
the bits yeah. to camera, which I don't think are convincing. And Matthew Broderick, like you said, got a Golden Globe for this. I just don't think he's very good. He didn't get a Golden Globe. He got nominated for a Golden Globe. But oh. yes, still the same. Yeah. I don't think he's bad in it. I just think it's the character's so unlikable. It doesn't matter. Like there's nothing charming about him. There's nothing likable about him. There's nothing you don't root for him in any way. Like you actively sort of want him to get caught out. I was waiting for his parents because I felt sure that the ending would be he'd get caught out by his parents, and right? they'd buy him a car. <laughs> <laughs> and then That's punishment. Yeah, <laughs> and it doesn't happen. And you're just like it's so unsatisfactory. Yeah. But also, why does John Hughes think like all children slash teenagers slash whatever are so fucking technologically minded that they can rig up their houses in this way to like, you know, answer the door and, mm. you know, have things that pretend that they're people in bed and blah, 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 blah. Like, have you not got who... a mannequin lying around, Jen? <laughs> Sadly, not. you have to get rid of him when you turn 20, honey. You're too old for that shit then. Yeah. It also has that thing that happens, and it's one of the things that annoys me most about all films, and that is that the crowd, the general hoi polloi, always get really into the thing that's happening. Like in Crocodile Dundee, where you're like, dude, you're walking on my fucking head. I don't give a shit about whether you're boning that woman or not. And it's the same thing here. Somebody's made a float, which they've presumably spent quite a lot of time preparing and like, having a routine, and up pops this prick. But instead of like everyone being annoyed, everyone's really into it because nobody can resist him. You would just literally look at him and just think, look at that bell end." You would. Can we talk about also the... I mean, there's so much wrong with it, but like the really weird like black chorus line of like backing dancers during the float... See. That was my black people as props line, Jen. What? What the? F- no, no, no. I, I understood it, but like, what the fuck was that? Yeah, agreed. Diversity. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's oh, a box tick, well, Jen. Yeah. Thank God we yeah. covered that one. And it's, it's got like this great double whammy of racism in that he that when yeah. they go and drop when he goes off and drops the car, the, the car yeah. off, he automatically assumes that that guy is dodgy because he looks Mexican or looks. And then guess what? That guy is dodgy because they're all dodgy. <laughs> But also, when he says to him, do you speak English? Yeah. And the guy says, what country do you think this is? Little quirky looked at camera from uh, from Ferris yeah. there. It's it's so blatant, the racism. Yeah. It's not even casual. Yeah. Yeah. But he can't be wrong, so he has to be right. This 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 guy does does have to be a wrong'un. A generic South American wrong'un. Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. What do you think your dad would have done if you'd come home and you'd broken the best thing? that he had oh he'd have gone fucking rago yeah (laughs) if the barometer had been broken there would currently be a blank space with not me in it because i would still be in my coma that my dad had put me in like 20 years ago when i smashed up his car i mean jesus i think that that shows a particular lack of understanding of what people's sort of lives are actually like that when you've got a dad that, that and I'm not saying I've got a dad, but when one has a dad that doesn't give a fuck about you, that actually, you know, just saying, dad, start giving a fuck about me is going to be enough to change your life. But also the idea that, like, you know, that he could just trash his dad's car and there wouldn't be repercussions for him. Or that, like, it shows, like, a lack of understanding 
on Ferris's part as well of like what the implications of that are for Connor because you know what if his dad oh you called him Connor she called Cameron but that's cute no it's very nice no no that's what I'm saying his dad his dad could like throw him out he could it just but yeah what that dad needed in order to become a good dad was the best thing in his collection to be just smashed to shit and he won't get insurance for it yeah but of course Ferris doesn't understand repercussions because he's never fucking faced any yeah, I mean, of all the things, when I saw that he'd written this in a week, I just thought, yeah, that's all you need to know. I could have just done that at the top. This film was written in a week. And that'd be the end of it. People do like it, though. It's weird. But I think it's yeah. people like Catcher in the Rye, I think they read it at the right time. Uh, you know, at, in their life, yeah. not in the world. I guess I would just ask, like, of anyone who enjoys it like yeah how it's a bit like big mickey o and his love of crocodile dundee although he stands by it how long ago did you watch this film did did you watch it recently because i mean i don't want to peek too soon here but if you've watched it recently you shouldn't think it's good basically The, the only thing that i liked about it was when i was little when charlotte and i were little my brother wasn't born yet i had an aunt and uncle who didn't have children and therefore they spent quite a lot of time with us and they had quite a lot more available spending money than most and they had a little sports car and they used to put Charlotte and I in the back wedged Mm. down where Cameron sat and I suppose it made me a tiny bit nostalgic for that and that was it. I had nothing else. At least you've got that, Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) Raid or dated? I mean... (laughs) Oh, I can't answer. I just need to go and shout in the garden again. Yeah. <laughs> dated. Yeah, sorry, it's dog shit and dated as well. Yeah, agreed. Dated. What's next? Please let it be better. Unfortunately, February continues to be shit. So what I decided to do was have a little look and see, do a little, what was released in the UK in February. That's what I always different. do, I, I just usually just Google films in february in general right uh and actually the results were quite different and a lot better so it's a shame that i didn't do that initially and we could have avoided whatever the fuck we watched last time oh no but we had such a good time with the hand that rocks the cradle (laughs) my legs are broken oh my god i saw that on the schedule today and i screenshot it to send to you both and say who did this well done and i assumed it was you Uh, so so we're gonna watch a film i've never watched before well it didn't go well last time jen it didn't go well last time yeah no it's quite i think it's quite a serious film we're gonna watch the crucible oh with daniel day lewis hmm Witch hunts, witch hunts, nothing relevant about that. That's what I thought. (laughs) Standard issue for all women.